Hello everyone, we're back with another episode of Disclosures Decoded, where we analyze music, movies, and media, both new and old. I'm your host, Dorian King. And I'm Sasha Sol. Now let's open the vault to share what we've decoded. So the name of the movie we're reviewing today is Blade Runner, The Final Cut. It's written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples. These two took Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and adapted it to a screenplay. Hampton co-wrote the 2019 sequel, but other than that, they don't have much more prominence within film. Ridley Scott is the director, and he has made a lot of epic movies ever since Blade Runner came out in 1982. In fact, did you know that he directed Gladiator, Hannibal, and Black Hawk Down? Because I just, I always associated him with Blade Runner and Alien. He's also technically Sir Ridley Scott. I didn't even realize he was British, to be honest. So it's very interesting. I learned a lot about him after having watched this movie. The cast is uh, made up of Harrison Ford, who played the main role of Detective Rick Deckard. He was on a real hot streak at the time, Harrison Ford, with uh, Indiana Jones having just come out and Empire Strikes Back two years before this film. So he was doing pretty well. Rutger Hauer is a Dutch actor who played the role of Roy Batty the cyberpunk-looking replicant. Outside of this, he's probably most known for the movie Turkish Delight. Sean Young is the high-class, extremely realistic replicant, love interest of Deckard, and unexpectedly, the famous Edward James Olmos plays the role of a character by the name of Gaff, He's a very magician-looking detective who provides us with a very mysteriously suggestive origami unicorn at the end of this movie. So Rick Deckard used to be what is known as a Blade Runner. He gave up that life and was living his daily routine until he got forced by his former police division to retire for replicants, which are basically robots identical to humans created by a company known as Tyrell Corporation. He wanted to turn down the request, but isn't given a choice. The movie goes on from there, and he tracks down these replicants one by one to more or less decommission these guys with a few bullets. Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier. The version we're watching is known as the final cut. As far as I know, there are eight versions of this movie, some better and some worse than others. They all seem to have different endings, hidden meanings, and things like that. But from the research we have done, this is the version that Ridley Scott actually wanted to be released back in 1982. What's funny to note is that he kept readapting to win favor of executives and the less than favorable audience reactions to his limited screenings of the other seven films. Regardless of the previous reviews, Ridley Scott took complete control and he enhanced his original to live up to his true vision. Starting from the beginning, 
I really like the noir cyberpunk perspective of what Los Angeles in 2019 looks like. It's really funny because it's literally 2020 now and it looks nothing like that. Considering the time this was written, I guess it's understandable to imagine something like this. But it's quite a drastic difference between the two worlds. I'm not sure if this is kind of a suggestion of where we should be by now, you know, with flying cars and androids, but it's definitely a cool setting and visual description. Yeah, and being able to watch this film in 2020 is great because we can physically compare where we stand as a society in terms of technology. And although we don't have flying cars, voice-commanded technology and video phone calls are part of the worlds we live in today. Yeah, I, I definitely thought some of the devices in the movie were pretty cool. They had a very old yet new feel to them, so I, I assume that in 1982, when this movie came out, they seemed pretty epic at the time. So, uh, And they're still pretty cool now. When I saw the Void Comp machine, it looked very bulky for something that was supposed to be so far into the future especially considering what things actually look like right now everything's kind of like smaller and like way smaller than that like it's just just really funny to me to see the real comparison of the two i guess it goes to show you that they believed bigger was better smarter or maybe more expensive at the time in the 80s especially when they had uh, cell phones being really clunky and huge but in the future we think it's a lot better to be sleek and on the topic of the void camp machine that was another thing that stuck out to me because i like that it wasn't that complex and it almost mimicked a modern day light de lie detector test to some degree with its large size and what it primarily focused on, which was gearing towards reactivity. As far-fetched as some of their technology in this movie was, this was on the simpler side, and it gave off the impression it was given more thought to it. When it comes to the replicants, though, I kind of wish I could see some robotics inside of these replicants. I know they're supposed to be identical to humans, but I guess I was expecting something along the lines of Westworld inside of them. Yeah, I think what makes it cool is that it gives a sense of mystery to who is and who isn't a replicant. It almost convinces the viewers to spot them out, at least according to the Tyrell Corporation's definition of a replicant. Yeah, when you're introduced to Tyrell, the creator of Tyrell Corp, he has this character Rachel with him. She's pretty much Tyrell's pet project, a replicant that he's implanting memories into. It's an interesting thing for the movie to introduce because I'm not sure there's too much of a direct tie to the main story with Deckard simply hunting down replicants. The intriguing thing about it, and I think this may be the reason Rachel is even in there, is that there's all this theorizing going on about how Deckard is actually a replicant. There's a point in the film where Deckard has all these pictures of his family, and the film doesn't give you anything more, so you can only assume they're either divorced or dead. But what if they're also implanted memories? Just a little extra support of how Deckard could actually be a replicant. 
Yeah, and the photos of his family were portraits in black and white, looking almost early 20th century. So for it being 2019, you would think they'd use film from the 70s or 80s to show his relatives, which also adds to the theory of implanted memories. Deckard's profession as a Blade Runner could also be an elaborate cover-up to deflect if he is a replicant. And compared to other films, I think most law enforcement tend to give off a stoic vibe anyway, but in this universe, Scott Creative, it gives off an element of, is he or isn't he a replicant? That's a really good point as well. But setting aside all these character details and set design, I want to talk a little about the overall meaning of this movie. There are two lines in particular that I feel had the most impact on me. The line Pris says, I think, therefore I am. And the line Roy Batty says, All those times will be lost like tears in the rain. I think, therefore I am is a bit of a common phrase, but it's definitely suggesting that there's a philosophical aspect to the movie. The idea that if you have the mental capacity to form opinions and supply a perspective, then are you to some degree alive? Or do you have to be biologically human to be considered alive? There is a lot of mind over matter in this film for sure, like you had mentioned. And not just in Pris, but also when confronted with the truth, Rachel denies this and leads on with the idea that she is human because of her memories. Along with what you had mentioned, the second line does have a human element of loss and remorse when you do read it back. Yeah, and I really like the second line because the whole scene feels applicable. Roy has been trying this whole movie to solve the problem of death through biomechanical engineering. That's why he's after Tyrell. But when he finds out that it's officially impossible, he basically gives up on existence. The very interesting thing is that he seems to prove a strong point in this scene. He basically ends up in a fight with Deckard, who has been killing all his replicant friends. Fast forward to the end of the fight, and the quote that I mentioned earlier comes up after he ends up saving Deckard's life instead of killing him in revenge. He tells Deckard about how he's witnessed so much in his existence and that no one else could ever imagine to have seen what he has. Then he says that line, all those times will be lost like tears in the rain. And just a, a little notice, it's raining in this scene. I think that he saves him to show that just because he's not biologically human and is deemed illegal, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have all the components of what it means to be human. And in this circumstance, that is emotions like sympathy, compassion, pity, regret. Just like questioning the adage, I think, therefore, I am. So, would you recommend the movie? We've done some cool reviews before. But after reviewing this, I realized just how difficult sci-fi movies can be to process. Some of them can be a little more scare factor based, but this is actually one of the most complex films I've seen in a long time. I definitely recommend it 
to a fan of philosophy, artificial intelligence, robotics, and cyberpunk types of movies. It's a very interesting film on those levels. For me, this was a movie I needed to sleep on before determining how I felt about it. Like you had mentioned, the complexities of the plot and dual meanings made it difficult to have a straight, narrow opinion on it. I would recommend this film to those who aren't shy to challenging, thought-provoking movies or any sci-fi fan who hasn't seen this version of the film in particular. I'd say this movie takes off the training wheels when it comes to sci-fi due to its decade-long debase regarding certain plot points. In terms of this being easy to watch, if you're into sci-fi, yes, because the themes are a little more familiar. If you're into rom-coms, it may be a little harder to follow or even care for, for that matter. If you're watching it because you like Harrison Ford or have simply been recommended, then you should know that there's some real depth to it. And during research, I learned about there being another version released before the final cut, which offers insight to the storyline through Rick Deckard or Harrison Ford narrating. I personally found myself pausing and feeling slightly lost about certain scenes, and due to this cut having no narration, it purely relies on a keen eye to follow along. Some watchers may feel alienated to the plot since parts of the movie feels more ambiguous, but that's just part of the fun. Now that you mention that, I think based on all of our analysis, it makes sense that Ridley Scott would want to release this version opposed to one with Ford narrating over it because he would like the idea of his audience being challenged to really figure things out. And from what I know, the executives that forced him to release this with all those other cuts were just trying to make it much more sellable to a wider audience. So I guess it makes sense that there was such a battle between the execs and Scott. So the writing quality. I haven't seen the book or read the book this has been based on. I have read that this is a decent adaptation of it. And movies can't always capture the quality and depth of a book can. But this movie as a whole is a cult classic now. I really liked the character writing. I think they did a great job writing each replicant in particular. Despite being manufactured, they still carried their own identities, whether it was in their appearance, interactions with humans, or their manipulation tactics. Unlike the other replicants, Pris and Rachel appeal to the emotions of others as soon as they make contact with them. Pris portrays herself as helpless to appeal to J.F. Sebastian's sympathy, while Rachel makes small talk with Rick about Tyrell Corp's owl. Other replicants you were introduced to had aggressive tactics towards deflecting their identity, and it isn't to say it was just female replicants. Zora was also aggressive towards Deckard in her dressing room. But it is interesting to note that unlike Pris, Rachel's interactions with others seem on a more leveled playing field, which begs the question, does her having memories make her feel more human and therefore not as inferior as the rest who use those defensive tactics? As far as this movie goes, did you feel like you could get into it easily or would you have to watch this multiple times? 
Well, there are eight versions of this movie. Some of them are drastically different. Others are minor changes. But there's only one version that really Scott approves of. That's the one we reviewed, the final cut. And it's fair to note that it's a take-it-or-leave-it kind of film, like you'd mentioned, despite having so many variations. I think from what I had looked into, the major differences are violence, language, and nudity censorship. And there is an alternate ending, but like, you know, in terms of how it affects the plot as a whole, you won't find a major alternate universe version that will satisfy you if this film doesn't do it for you. That's a very great point. So the production quality now is pretty great for a movie in the early 1980s. It has a lot of cool background characters and the settings are very detailed. The movie does a great job of making you forget that you're in Los Angeles because of their designs. It's got a real Star Wars kind of influence to it as well with how tightly packed the areas are, the different languages being spoken, characters looking a little bit uh, off in comparison to each other. And like you mentioned about the different ethnicities being mixed into it, I think that's pretty pivotal for a 1980s film where a lot of actors were primarily white or of European descent. So to kind of introduce other heritages in this 2019 Los Angeles, it does speak true to what Los Angeles looks like today. So what did you think about the acting in this movie? Well, Harrison Ford does an interesting job as Deckard. I feel like when you see him, he does come across as an ex-cop living in an average apartment, drinking, and kind of just getting by. Not necessarily monetarily, but when you see the pictures of what his presumed family looks like, then you get the idea that he's divorced or they passed away. So he does a good job of portraying this character. It's also no easy task to act without emotions or diminished emotions. And you could see that in Harrison Ford's character, Rick Deckard, and even the replicants. So everybody executed it according to their character's motives. And as far as Rick Deckard goes in particularly, he does read... He reads as though it's a role for Harrison Ford. Yeah, and you know what? Something that I found out that was pretty crazy was how many other people were considered for the role. Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Al Pacino, and Burt Reynolds. That's a lot of very famous names, especially today. And I honestly can't picture any of those guys playing this role very well i mean maybe burt reynolds could look the part but i don't think he's a quality enough actor to be able to pull this off and harrison ford has that lone wolf demeanor ever since he was in star wars as han solo so i think people kind of wanted to go into the movie for him a little bit that's very true so, this was another episode of Disclosures Decoded. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now you can expose what we've disclosed. <laughs>